All right. Um, good morning, everybody. Let's, uh, let's start out with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this lesson. Father, God, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you, as a tri- our triune God, have made a way for us to be reconciled to you, God, that through Jesus Christ we can have forgiveness of sins. Even the worst of sinners can come to you and have grace, receive grace from you, Father. And Lord, I thank you that you are not like us. You are unchanging, everlasting. Everything you do is good and just and holy and perfect. And we pray that as we study who you are today and as we look into the truths of this lesson, Lord, that you'd open our eyes, that you'd give us, first of all, you'd give us humility. You'd give us uh, an awareness of who we are, what we deserve, and Second of all, that you'd help us to worship you in spirit and in truth because of these things that we learn and study. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first lesson, I introduced the topic and I established the biblical basis, as you remember from last week, the biblical basis of this section of the catechism, uh, namely regarding the decrees of God. And so... Um, Let's just quickly, before we dive into this new lesson for today, let's review the question and answer. So I'm going to read the first, I'm going to read the question. You guys together read the answer, okay, with me for both of these. So what are the decrees of God? And how does God execute His decrees? God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Right. Thank you, guys. That's, uh, that is awesome. What you might not realize, which you've already been doing this for a couple sessions, but if you do this ten weeks in a row, you will almost certainly have some grasp of these questions. And so that's kind of the idea. It's just that we get this repetition going so that when we have someone talk to us or ask us about the decrees of God, maybe we won't be able to go into advanced theological depth on it, but at least you could tell them, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And that can help you and guide you along the way if someone asks you a question or if you yourself have a question. So, the theme of today's lesson is intended to bring clarity to the topic of the decrees of God by reviewing and applying a bit of what we've learned earlier on in our studies. So earlier on, as in when John was teaching and when uh, Prashant was teaching and former teachers were taking us through the catechism. So the previous catechism series was taught by John, and this was about the doctrine of God, you'll remember. A lot of attributes and and, uh, facts and realities about who God is that we were learning. So... There's a lot that goes into understanding the doctrine of God, and this is not something that I can like summarize in a little lesson or go back and recap quickly. But what we can do is we can realize that there's a reason that the questions and answers of the catechism are ordered the way that they are. They actually build on each other 
logically or theologically upon each other as we're going through. So the authors of the Catechism actually put a series of questions before the questions pertaining to the decrees of God. And I believe that's for a good reason. So, for instance, when we studied previous questions, we thought about things like, who is the first and chief being? was the first question. Or seven, what is God? Or eight, are there more gods than one? Or nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? So that's, that's a question about the Trinity, about God and His nature. And so what they wanted to do in ordering the Catechism this way, where they talk so much about who God is and His characters and His attributes, what they're trying to do there is they're trying to give a full picture and a good picture of who God is before they start diving into answering more uh, detailed or other branched kind of questions like this one pertaining to the decrees of God. And so today our mission is like the Catechism does, where it first talks about God and then dives into the decrees of God. Since the, lesson, since the series is going to be on the decrees of God, today what I want to do is I want to first shed some much-needed light on the doctrine of God. I want to talk about God just a little bit, not exhaustively, but kind of give us a good picture of who God is in light of, in light of the decrees so that we can actually approach the decrees of God in a more reverent and understanding fashion. And so, like I said, it's not possible for me to like recap everything or to be exhaustive in any sense, but it's very important that we, before we dive into studying the decrees of God even further, that we just look again at God, that we have a better understanding of who He is, and especially some very relevant and pertinent aspects of who He is. So, um, to begin with, to kind of emphasize that point or the kind of theme of this lesson again, I have found another quote by our friend Wilhelmus. And uh, we're going to look at this quickly. It's, it you know, has some language that maybe is a little bit difficult, but I think it's very helpful in teaching us kind of how we should approach this topic, how we should move forward as we're studying this topic with a good view of who God is. So he says, God in decreeing creation has eternally purposed and decreed within himself where, when, how, and of what nature each creature should be, and what each should do and encounter. So that, that's relatively straightforward with what we talked about last time from Scripture, right? It's that God knows all things. He knows where each person will be, where each creature will be. He knows what they will do, and He knows uh, what they will do and what they will encounter. And so, whereas this doctrine itself can be deduced from the Word of God, so remember last lesson, we deduced it from the Word of God. We went through and we looked at all the Scriptures, or some of the Scriptures, to try to prove that fact, to try to prove that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So whereas this doctrine can itself be deduced from the Word of God, here comes the mystery aspect. It says the manner in which God decreed it is hidden from us. So we can look in the Word and we can see that God has decreed it, but all the intricacies and the understanding of all the detail of how that works is not in our grasp. It's not something that's within our boundaries. So in this respect, we have hindsight rather than foresight. That's why you and I can look back on our life and see the sovereignty of God and His work and His movement a lot better than we can predict it into the future, right? And everyone can probably nod in agreement to that, right? <laughs> so many times in our lives we look back and we say, wow, God led me through that in such an amazing way. Hindsight rather than foresight. And then it says... When it, now, this is kind of the core of what we're going to be doing today, looking at God's being. It says, the last sentence, We discuss this doctrine in human terms, 
seeking to understand it in a manner consistent with God's being. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to look at this in a manner that's consistent with God's being. So that's our attempt is to be uh, understanding God's being, understanding who God is. So we've looked at the scriptures that prove this doctrine. Now we also are going to understand a little bit more about God's being. And from there, then we're going to be able to move forward, like he says, in a manner that's consistent with that. Because you're almost certainly going to go astray. Um, You're almost certainly going to go after your own opinion or your own mindset or what you think things should be like or the way you wish they were. If you do not first get a grasp of God's being. If you do not first seek to understand it in a manner that's consistent with his being. And so now let's dive into this. We're going to have three, three aspects to our lesson. The first one. Um, yeah, the first. Yeah, first thing we're going to look at is the Trinity. So the fact that God is triune, you know, John taught us about that in more detail. You can go back and listen in more detail to that if you'd like. But God is a trinity. He is triune. And so his decrees are covenantal. I want to show that. Okay, I want to show that to us because it's so important as we move forward to have a grasp on his covenantal relationship with his people. And his, the, the eternal, especially the eternal aspect of that. The fact that God has decided in, before all time, before all history, to make covenant, to make a relationships, uh, covenant relationship with sinful human beings like us. And so, first thing that we can look at that's just a basic Christian truth is that God is a trinity. Right? That means that He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that, that is considered in question 9, like what John taught us about. And in this doctrine of the Trinity, in very simple terms, we could talk about it in much detail, but in this doctrine of the Trinity, we see in simple terms that God is perfect unity. So God is one, right? He is perfect unity, but He is also three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the thing we need to understand is that this is the most critical doctrine of the Christian faith. Because from the, from the Trinity, from our understanding of the Trinity... Actually, all of our other doctrines flow out from this. All of our theology, as we understand God's revelation of His own nature and His relationship to us as His creatures, actually flows out of who God is as a triune God. So when somebody comes as a heretic, often the first place they're going to go to attack it is going to be attacking our understanding of God as triune. He's perfect unity, but He's also three persons in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we study the Trinity... We understand that the triune God is the one who has decreed the decrees of God. It's not God as some abstract, distant idea or something. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And so the interesting thing I want to look at is that this third point is that God's triune decree relates to what is called the covenant of redemption. Okay, the covenant of redemption is something that some of you might never have heard of. Though if you've been in this Sunday school with me and others before, you've heard us talk about this. And it's a very important biblical idea that I think we can briefly touch on to hopefully do it some justice. It's going to be something that's a lot... You could spend your lifetime, really, I'd say. You could spend your lifetime studying the covenant of redemption and the Trinity and and the eternal decree of God in the Trinity. But... This is such an important aspect of how we understand God's decree. Is this triune reality 
And then also that from this covenant of redemption comes creation and comes our salvation and comes the grace that we receive from God as, our, as we understand it. And so, first of all, let me say this. Um, the covenant of redemption is the pre-temporal. Okay? Pre-temporal means before creation or before the world. Intertrinitarian, that intra-trinitarian means within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before the world existed, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have... Um, okay, I'm struggling here. Have made an agreement, and they have planned to execute the redemption of the elect. Okay, that's what it is. It's a pre-temporal, so before creation, it's an agreement between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to execute the redemption of the elect. And so I don't have time to, like I said, prove this exhaustively because it's a bit of a deep dive and very complex, as some of you may know, but. Uh, Two quick verses that we can kind of look to to prove this idea, or at least give us a good sense of what kind of, what am I talking about when I'm talking about God's um, covenant of redemption, or this triune aspect. Because remember, God is triune, so His decrees are covenantal. How does God being three in one connect to His covenants and His relationship with people? That's the way you think of covenant, is this agreement, this relationship to people as those who are lost and need saving. And so... One verse we can look at is John 6, verse 37 to 39. Does everybody turn to John 6, verse 37 to 39. All right. Um, Can one of you all read it for me, please? So you can clearly see this is Jesus talking and explaining that the Father, so the Father, that's God. Jesus, that's the Son, that's God. The Father has given me. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. So before they actually come to Him, they've been given to Him. And that's part of this idea of the decree. When God makes a, when God uh, plans something or has a purpose, That's always something in eternity because God is eternal. God is outside of our time. So basically, we see here, right? The Father, all that the Father gives to me, as Jesus, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. So that means that Jesus is sent on a mission, an eternally given mission by the Father um, to come and do the will of the Father. Jesus is coming to do the will of the Father. Of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Ultimately, he wants to come, die on the cross, to redeem and save those who have been given to him, so that at the end, we can be resurrected, so that we can have this moment of being raised up with him, and so that everything can be made new, and the glory of God can be seen in all of it. So I hope that gives you some idea of kind of what I'm talking about. God decided, the Father Son and the Holy Spirit have made this agreement in eternity past to save us. If you're a sinner, you're lost, that's what you can say. You can say, 
I have come to receive grace. I've come to Jesus Christ. And I've been saved because of this. Because of this eternal agreement. So this God being triune and His uh, decree being this covenantal decree between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is called the covenant of redemption. And another verse that shows this is 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. Turn there for me, if you uh, don't mind. I'll just read from verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And here it starts. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So that's what this covenant of redemption idea is. That's this election idea. Think about it. Paul is here writing to Timothy and he's saying the grace and the purpose, the purpose and grace of God was something given to the saints before the ages began. That's kind of mind blowing for us, right? We're living in the ages that have began. We're living in time right now. But the grace that Jesse has received, the grace that Seth has received, the grace that any of us has received is a grace that was received but was given way back then. It says before the ages began. And that's what I'm referring to here. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit making this covenantal decree, the covenant of redemption to seek and to save the lost way before even the ages began. And so all of our understanding of the decrees of God and the redemption that ensues after that, all of that flows out from this covenant. God making His covenant of redemption. And then in time we see God making His covenant with sinners and saving them through Jesus Christ. But all of that again, like I said, is flowing from the Trinity. It's flowing from God, the Father, one and three. Flowing through the covenant of redemption. Everything we understand about theology flows out of this reality. So we find in Scripture that the entire reason that God created the world and decreed whatsoever came to pass is so that God can be glorified in His creation. So that's what this is all about. This, this eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and the Spirit is so that God can be glorified in His creation and so that in the redemption of the elect and the restoration of all things, He can receive all the glory and praise for it. Right? That's what this is all about. And it's really, um, it's really truly beyond us in some respects like I talked about before in our previous lesson this is something that's just so big and so eternal and so amazing and immense and don't be don't be uh, feeling bad if it's like wow that's new for me or that's tough to understand because it's tough to understand you just have to you just have to be okay with that and so what we understand then if through this covenant of redemption and the trinity making this covenant is that the reason that the angels and the demons and sin and hell and everything else is allowed to exist is so that the glory of God and the display of God's mercy and justice and all of the rest of his attributes can shine forth in Jesus Christ. Okay, so everything that exists, everything that comes to pass is a product of God's covenant in eternity, God's decree in eternity that ultimately then brings glory and praise to Jesus Christ and to the Father. And to the Holy Spirit. 
And so we understand, hopefully now, to some extent, that it would be impossible for us to understand God's decrees, to understand his work in time and space, to understand what he's done, if we do not first understand this, the fact that he's a trinity, the fact that he has made this covenant of redemption. And so, yeah, this, like I said, this is just too much. This is mind-blowing in some respects, and I can't give it enough time here to do it justice, really. And I know you, some of you maybe feel like that, but I almost kind of want to stir you up to think about this. Think about how does the Trinity relate to the rest of the Scriptures? That helps you give like this all of time, all of history, all of, all of everything that we understand and see as being wrapped up in who God is and who He is as our triune, sa- our triune saving, gracious, loving, holy God. And so next, uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to look at God's immutability. So we talked about last time. What's immutability? What does it mean to be immutable? Yeah, unchanging. And we did a whole thing on how you can remember that. So hopefully some of you had that come to mind again. (laughs) And I hope that it sticks. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so God, uh, God is immutable. He never changes. And His decrees are guarantees. So basically, the fact that God is immutable means that we can trust Him. It means that His decrees, it means that the things that He's decided or purposed to take place, these are all guaranteed. They're, you could say they're as good as set in stone. So when God plans something or decides something, He can never change. So let me prove that quickly from the Bible, that God never changes. If you guys, I'm not going to expect you to keep up with this because it's going to be uh, very quick, but... Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ never changes. You want, you want a verse that's very plain to prove a point? Get ready for this next one. It's even more plain than the first one. Malachi 3 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. <laughs> that's pretty cool. James 1 verse 17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We're changers. We're human. We change. That's what we do. From the moment we're born, from the moment we're conceived, literally from the moment you're conceived till the moment you die, all you're doing constantly is changing. That's it. Literally, you're always losing cells, gaining cells, changing your mind, changing opinion, changing, changing, changing. In everything you can ever think of. Every single way, you're a changer. But God does not change. Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord, I do not change. It's an amazing reality that we need to understand about God. And it's an area when it comes to the decrees of God in which so many people go so very, very wrong. They go so very, very out and whack in their theology because they do not stick to the very plain teaching of Scripture, which, like I said, could not be any more plain. I am the Lord. I do not change. They don't stick to that, and it leads them down this crazy path. And so basically, we can understand that God's decrees are guarantees because God does not change, because He's immutable. And the reason that is, is kind of a logical thing. Let's look at it. Somebody changing their mind or changing their plan is always the result of one of two things. Okay? It's either their lack of wisdom or knowledge. 
So somebody either didn't know something was going to happen, and so then they had to readjust their plan, right? So somebody having to change is either because they lack wisdom or knowledge, or because they lack power. Either they knew, So they knew something was coming, but they didn't have the power to change it. They didn't have the power to control it. They didn't have the power to order things the way that they uh, wanted it. They were not able to deal with the situation, so they had to make a new plan. Right? So somebody having to change their purpose or their plan is always a result of one of those two things. They either lack wisdom or knowledge, or they lack power. So we ask ourselves reasonably, does God have any of these two problems? And the answer is, of course not. Does God lack wisdom or knowledge? No. 1 John 3.20 says, God knows all things. Does God lack power? Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God does whatever He pleases. It means He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and Your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for You. There's nothing too hard for him. So what do we know? We know that the only two reasons that someone would change... First of all, we know God said very plainly he does not change. And we know plainly that he does not have two of the issues that would cause him to change. Very plainly taught in Scripture as well. So we know clearly from Scripture that God has neither of these issues. He doesn't lack power and he doesn't lack wisdom. And this means that the things that God has decreed, the things that he has foreknown in eternity... They're not possibilities for him, which is great news for us as changers, right? They're not possibilities for him. He doesn't lack wisdom or power. They're guarantees. They're not possibilities. He never changes. And this fact also means that we can have a great amount of confidence knowing that God's promises in his word are guarantees. So just not only is his decree guaranteed, but what he promises to do in the future is also guaranteed. What an encouragement for us. We're changers. We're in this broken and sin-filled world. What we want is something rock solid to hold on to. What we want is a confidence that God never changes. That what He promises will come to pass. Definitely. He says, believe in my Son and you'll be saved. We don't want that to maybe be true. That would suck. We want that to be very true. We want that to be set in stone, so to speak. We want it to be a guarantee. And this is amazing because if God decreed it from eternity past, then it also is going to stretch into eternity future. Right? You think about it that way? God decreed it from eternity past, and everything that He's caused to come to pass has been a guarantee, has been a certainty, not a possibility. And that means as we look forward into the future, then we have something to look forward to, which is that whatever God said will happen in the future will come to pass. It's rock solid. And so... Um, in order, this is, an, this is a great way to sum this up. In Ephesians 2 verse 7 it says that the, de- the purpose of the decree of God is that in order that he may show forth in the coming, sorry, is, is that he may show forth in the coming ages the exceeding riches of his grace in his goodness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right? So we have this future thing to look forward to because the decrees of God are guarantees. They're not possibilities. It says here that the exceeding riches of His grace in the goodness towards us in Christ Jesus is going to be shown forth in the coming ages. In the coming ages. So that means you and I, we look forward to those coming ages with certainty, with confidence, with joy because it's a promise. It's a guaranteed thing. 
Is, did it go off? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so yes, that is God's immutability. His not changing as a guarantee for us. His decrees are a guarantee. So then the last one is that since God is good, just, true, and wise, His purposes are always for good. So the Bible teaches two things that seem to be in conflict, okay? Two things that in our limited minds, like I talked about last time, they seem to be in conflict with one another. The first is that God decrees evil and bad things to come to pass. So we can look that one up, or you can remember what I was talking about last time when we looked at this verse, Acts 4, verse 27 to 28. The only reason I use that verse is one of a million other verses in the Bible you could use. But the reason I use that one is because it's saying God in eternity purposed and promised and wanted for Jesus Christ to be crucified at the hands of sinners. Right? So obviously we know from the Bible that God decrees um, evil and bad things to come to pass. And then on the other side, we know from Scripture that God himself is always and only good. So if he decrees evil and bad things to come to pass, and he is himself always and only good, to us that seems like a very difficult thing to rationalize, right? And if, we, if we're honest, that's just the way it is. It's a very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. It's very difficult for us as finite human beings, as people who are wrapped up in time and our own concerns and our own pains and our own strugglings, if we know that God is all-powerful, that it's very difficult for us to also trust that he is good when we look around at the broken world of evil and suffering and other hard things that God has allowed to come to pass. But at the end of the day, even though God decrees evil and bad things to come to pass, we know that God himself is not evil or bad. God himself is not evil or bad. In fact, God himself is always and only ever good. Okay, so let's look at 1 John 4, 8. There it says... God is love. God is love. It's his identity. It's just the core of his being. God is love. Lots of other texts say that God is all wise. For instance, in several places in the New Testament, it's not just once. Jude 25 is an example of it where it says God who alone is wise. God who alone is wise. So he is love. He is wise. It says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 that God is faithful, just, and upright. It says all his ways are justice. So he's love. He's wise. All his ways are justice. He is a God of faithfulness. He's faithful. And without iniquity, just and upright is he. So he's not a God with any iniquity in him. He has no darkness in him. He has no sin in him. Psalm 89 verse 14 says... Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness, justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So we have to understand again, we come to a point where we have to submit to the word of God, what it says, right? You're either going to be a person who trusts God in the midst of evil and bad things that he's decreed and allowed to come to pass, you're either going to be the person who submits humbly to him, knowing that his plan is higher than your plan, that his wisdom is greater than your wisdom, or you're going to be the type of person who on this basis rejects God, 
Because there's many, many people. You can go countless on the amount of human beings on earth who reject God on this basis. When I was over there, this just comes to mind now as I'm thinking of it. So many conversations I've had, and I'm sure you guys have had these same conversations before, where people reject God on this basis of this kind of dissonance or this two different truths that seem to not be able to be reconciled. Um, One of my teammates when I was playing over in Sweden, I was trying to convince him to become a Christian. I was trying to speak to him about God and the Bible. And it was interesting because it seemed he had thought about it very deeply. He thought about it very long and hard. And he rejected God with not just, not just intellectually, but he got visibly angry. You could tell he would suffered so much in his life. He'd been through something so hard or he's seen so much tragedy or so much brokenness that he got so visibly angry when I was talking to him about this. And basically cursed to God and said, God cannot be good because of all the bad and evil and hard things that have happened in the world. And that's a that's just a reality we have to face with. That's our human experience. This two things that are going on at the same time. And so we're going to get into this in much more detail later on. We actually have a whole entire lesson dedicated just to that one question, just just to this kind of dissonance. But. The reason I brought this up now is because this is the guiding principle. The guiding principle is not the stuff we see with our eyes. Right? The guiding principle for how we study and approach and learn the decrees of God and the catechism is not the suffering that we experience with our bodies or the pain and the hardship we see with our eyes. Right? What is the guiding principle is like a Brockel was talking about is that we study in accordance with God's being. And the way that we know what God's being is, is like all those verses that I listed, all those verses I went through that say, even though my eyes see that God has allowed this pain for me, even though my eyes see that God has allowed this suffering for me, even though my eyes see that there's a lot of darkness and a lot of hurt and a lot of abuse and a lot of tragedy in the world, I will trust in the word of God. I will trust that His ways are higher than my ways. I will trust in the fact that He is good, that He is love, that, his, that there is no iniquity in Him. Without iniquity and just and upright is He. I'll trust that. And that's kind of what I want to get us to, is this point where we can submit to the realities of Scripture, submit to the truth of what it says God is really like, and not like out of anger or out of our own personal experience, reject God. And it's interesting then to know that because God is just and because God is loving, He sends His Father. The Father sends His Son to die on the cross. Right? He sends His Son, the God Man, to die on the cross. That means the ultimate suffering, the ultimate injustice, the ultimate wrongdoing that ever took place. Right? Takes place on the God Man, Jesus Christ. So the nice thing for us then is to think of like, man, I might be going through some really bad stuff or I might have been very badly mistreated or maybe I've been abused or maybe I've been in a really long, dark season of depression and I can't get out of it. And this life just seems so difficult and so hard for us, for me, right? We have a Savior who can relate to all that because He was the one who suffered the most injustice. He was the one who suffered the most horrible thing. And all of this being to the end that God would be glorified through the saving of sinners. So interestingly enough, on another hand, not one of us actually deserves to live in a world that's better than this. We probably deserve to live in one that's worse than this. 
because of our sin before a holy God, right? We don't deserve to live in a world that's better than this one. At least this one still has sunlight and friendship and love and, like, fellowship meals and churches. Like, you know what I mean? God, God is still showing us a great deal of common grace and mercy in light of all of that. So through all of this, we understand that God is good and that he works all things together for his own glory and the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He is not capricious. That's the word that my Swedish buddy used. He is not cruel. He is not wicked. He is not evil or wicked, even though he has allowed evil and wickedness to take place. How can that be? How can we be so sure that he is not in any of those things? Because his word says so. Because his word says so. And he's spoken to us his true and inerrant word. God allows these difficult things to take place. God allows these hard things to happen, but always for his own good purposes. And so in bringing sin to pass, he does not himself ever commit a sin. Right? God has decreed and allowed sin to come to pass and wickedness and Satan and demons and everything to exist. But he does not himself ever commit a sin. That is the biblical standard. That is the biblical reality that we look to because God is good, just and wise and his purposes are always good. He never has any iniquity. We must always remember that God is good, just, true, wise. If we're going to approach a topic as difficult, as complex as the decrees of God... If we're going to do it with reverence and fear and godliness, then we're always going to have to keep these things in mind. And so we've now seen the, um, the better view of who God is, um, basically the, the biblical view of who God is in, in a very brief way, in a summary fashion like I've given you guys. And um, if we go back again and look at what John taught previously and add more depth to this, if you'd like, then this sets us up for a wonderful time of studying the decrees of God. This is because the decrees of God are his eternal purpose and plan and the way that he uh, that we understand them scripturally, interpret them and apply them to our lives. This is all determined by what kind of God we think made the decrees. Right. It's very important that we understand what kind of God is it that made these decrees. And so as we go through and we wrestle with a few different difficult topics of faith and mystery, then it's going to be very important for us to keep our God clearly in view. I want to reiterate that. Keep our God clearly in view. So what have we learned this morning? We've learned that the triune God who has made an eternal covenant of redemption is immutable, eternal, infinite, and is always good, just, true, and wise. It's going to set us up with a wonderful backbone, if you will, or a foundation, which is going to keep us from straying. It's going to keep us from going off in our own vain thoughts, our own limited understanding, our own ideas when we're studying the doctrine of God's decrees and instead keep us rooted and grounded in the truth, keep us rooted in the scriptures. So as Abrakel said at the start, we're now going to be going forward with a better perspective as we study the topic What we're going to be doing is we're going to be seeking to understand it in a manner that is consistent with God's being. That's what we're doing. Kind of a motto, you can say, if you will. We're going to go and seek to understand and answer these difficult things in a manner consistent with God's being. 
And so, as I've said since the beginning, the purpose of studying these topics is ultimately to worship God and to love God, to see Him more clearly. And it's not to entertain our own uh, vain curiosities or our own opinions or to see what we can get away with, but instead it is to submit to God's will and His purpose and His eternal decree. It's to submit to Him. So ultimately, like, a, like we can think, the purpose at the end of the day in studying anything about God and studying Scripture is, first of all, that will be leading us to worship and as people to lead us to humility so that we would actually be lower, so that we would be broken, so that we would be in the right posture towards Him. So as we go forward in this study, we're seeking to worship our Lord in spirit and in truth and to be truly humbled by His awesome glory, by His power, by His might, by all these realities of who He is and then how He's decreed, how He's made these eternal decrees. And so that's all we have for this morning and um, let us pray before we go and worship together. Father, God, we thank you so much, Father, for who you are. We thank you so, so, so much that we can see in your word that in light of what we see with our eyes, that can be misleading. But in what we see in your word, that can never be misleading. And that's solid. It's set in stone. It's giving us an understanding of why we're saved and what we're saved from and It's given us a good understanding, God, of who you are. I pray that you'd help us this morning to come, after hearing some of these more difficult, challenging ideas, to come to you in worship and in humility before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen.